Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's give it up for our one and only super producer, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Max Williams. <laughs> and uh, let's also, well, they call me Ben. Uh, let's also give it up for my ride or die, very good friend of mine here in spirit, Mr. Noel Brown. Noel is out for a bit, but will be returning soon. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we have been speaking a lot offline, and it is our fondest wish that the show go on. So we're going to have a couple of special guest hosts in the next few episodes. And this is where I would like to introduce our very first uh, special guest host in this lineup. Folks, give it up for Mr. Max Williams. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We searched long and far. We we really worked hard to find someone to come in and they all said no. So you stuck with me. Uh well, you know, our search was assiduous. We did our due diligence. Let me give you a little background on Max Williams for anybody uh who is not familiar. So Max Williams, you know him, you love him from uh shows like Ephemeral, from shows like Ridiculous History. Uh you may also know that he is a fan of curling. He is a fan of war history. He is a fan of Star Trek. Uh he is also a fan of the phrase beef it. Oh, yeah, I got to beef it, man. Beef it. We won't explain on air what that means. That's you a little want too to? dirty. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, uh, oh, man, we might have to flag this as explicit if we do that. Right. So, okay. So, in this case, then, uh, we're going to talk about survival today. And nowadays, I think for anybody who's a fan of presidential lore, like you and myself, Max, you might be astonished to learn just how wild the lives of past U.S. presidents were. Uh, in many ways, they have adventures that seem straight out of 
straight out of the big screen. You, Noel, and I have talked in the past about all kinds of strange things. Most recently in U.S. presidential lore, we talked about Abraham Lincoln's former career as a trash-talking wrestler straight out of WWE. Yeah, and don't forget about uh, Ronald Reagan and throwing rocks at people while he was a lifeguard. That was a pretty (laughs) strange one, too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like, you know, especially when it comes to these older presidents, a lot of what we hear commonly is about like, oh, this is what they did in office or this is like especially older ones who were generals like Jackson and Taylor and stuff. Where It's like these were the great battles, but a lot of times lost in history or just kind of like, you know, these idiosyncrasies about them and just also these kind of like wilder stories. And I think, uh, yeah, Andrew Jackson has a few of those himself. Not all good, of course. No, no, not all good. We have the benefit of retrospect here. Uh, that's right. What, being a president requires a uh, a certain set of skills to be a little Liam Neeson about it. Uh, and it's also inherently a pretty dangerous position. Uh, you are much more likely to have people attempt to assassinate you if you are the president than, say, if you are a plumber. I believe that's true. I'm assuming there uh, any plumbers in the crowd write in and let us know. Uh, but today, Max, you and I are talking about a story that I think really captivated both of us. We're talking about presidents who survived assassination attempts, and we're going to have to start. We're going to have to spend a lot of time, I think, today on uh Oh, gosh, Max, what would you call him? I don't know if I would call him our collective favorite president, but he's certainly a fascinating character, one and only Andrew Jackson. I remember junior year nerdy Max AP U.S. history class being Mm -hmm. taught by my uh, AP U.S. history professor, Mr. Boucher, that Andrew Jackson is a very important president in American history. He says like, he's not a good one in many ways, but he is a very influential. And <laughs> I, I think that's probably the best way to say it. There's a, still a lot of Jackson era stuff that still exists in America. Let's just say, mm-hmm. I mean, he's arguably our first King and, you know, we've had a couple sense him like, like a guy who was in office for 13 years. Oh yeah. Yep. Because that's uh, because that's before the uh, that that's before the laws of the land change, restricting a president to two terms. Right. And when we talk about when we talk about Jackson, one thing we have to mention is that he, like several other U.S. presidents of this era, was known for these real barnstormers of speeches. And while the transcripts of many of those speeches exist today, we as the U.S. did not have the technology to record the audio or the video. So a lot of it may be lost in translation through interpretation of the text. But you have to know this. Jackson is known for huge speeches. He is an orator. He fires up a crowd and he has to do this. This is like campaigning, right? This is how he keeps himself front and center in the minds of voters and opponents. So our story kind of starts, um, you, know, you put uh, you put a lot of work in this outline. I, I just beefed it a little. Uh, the this, this story starts, oh. on, <laughs> I'm not letting it go, on January 30th, oh. 1835. Max, can you set the scene for us? Why is this day important? So as you said, January 30th, 1835. So this is a kind of weird day. So as you said, like Jackson, he's a fiery speaker. He's also a war hero from the War of 1812. And his kind of politics at the time were very much like, you know, divisive, like very Mm -hmm. like aggressive. And so it's very rare that people in Washington are all kind of together and just like, we're not fighting today, but this day they were not fighting at least at this point in time. So they're at the Capitol building for a funeral for South Carolina representative Warren Davis. And, you know, it was a dreary, misty day. Onlookers look kind of like, you know, it was one of those days where it's like, let's not, do this today. We're going to be respectful of the dead. We're going to do this whole thing. Yeah. No more. Uh, he, he's, he's saying, I'm not today of all days. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put the claws back just a little. We're not you doing know? this today. We're I'm not puffing gonna, up. I'm hissing. Right. We're going to pump the brakes ju- just for today because this is bigger than us. 
Uh, this occurs about six years into his presidency, and he had already had this reputation, as as you said, for using a very, very fiery polemical speeches to get support and to engage with his political opponents. He also loved a veto. The guy loved, loved a veto. He loved a veto the way Garfield loves lasagna. He was all about it. Uh, at this time, he was using the veto way more often than other administrations and sometimes just to straight up obstruct actions of Congress for no other reason than screw you guys. Uh, you're my right. enemies. Like that was actually not a common thing to do. The veto was a very like selective thing to use before Jackson. He was like the first one to really use it. And I think we should talk about like how, how like how bad this got was. So when Jackson was elected, there was like one political party in the country at the time. And like people like Henry Clay, who if you don't know who Henry Clay is, he's a uh, another very influential person in American politics. We'll keep with the influential one. But like he was like in that position. It's like, Okay, we're going to create a new political party. This party is, of course, called the Whigs, one of the best named political parties in our country history. (laughs) And like their sole purpose was to like fight King Andrew, as they called him. Right. King Andrew being, of course, Andrew Jackson. Uh, Mm -hmm. I personally would make the observation that starting a party without its own without its own proactive goals starting a party entirely in opposition of an existing thing kind of damages your shelf life. But, but yeah. as it did with the wigs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or the, um, Oh, what were they? The no nothings or the anti-Masonic party. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. right. Because they were just, the, their the thing no nothings for something else. Also, what were they? The no nothing party K N O W. Uh, they were, they came around in the 1850s, so a little bit after this, and they were mad at Catholic immigrants. They were mad at uh, anybody moving in. Um, yeah. They, they later kind of, they preceded the temperance party, I think. Mm, sound like lovely people. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of fun at parties. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so uh, you know what would have been great, though, also? would have been a fun party to watch if there was c-span back in the 1830s man this would have been amazing because the senate chamber was ground zero to reality tv level drama uh the Whig party as you said they were haranguing king andrew and called him uh and they said he's corrupt he's incompetent he's a real piece of work and the president came back it was almost like a um almost like a rap battle, right? The dueling oratory uh, skills here. So, of course, Jackson comes back and says, you know, I'm doubling down. Not only do I think the Whigs are corrupt and incompetent, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to run a nation. Come at me physically. I will get you. Like, I'm... I'm being a little hyperbolic. I'm taking a lot of editorial license here, but he did physically threaten them. And this leads us to January of 1835. There is a senator from South Carolina named John C. Calhoun, and he's got a personal beef, I think, with Jackson. Yeah. So like Calhoun, if I remember correctly, not a very good guy just in general, but he was like (laughs) He was weird. So we have to go back to like the what is the election of 1824. There was like five people running. It was a weird, crazy thing. Jackson had won, but then Quincy Adams became president. That's a whole thing. We won't talk about that here. But like, <laughs> so Calhoun had actually been Jackson's first VP. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, this is like Obama and Biden, um, Reagan and HW, like they're buddies. And then all of a sudden he's like, dude, you suck. And he decides, like, I cannot stand for this guy. He's like, he left the Veep position to be just in opposition to join Henry Clay's party and go into the Senate and just fight this guy. Like, and, I, and I think this is an important thing that you pointed out where it's like Jackson was known for being really militant with mm-hmm. his thing. I mean, both like would abuse people both verbally and pretty much physically, too. And the problem that happened was that was the Whigs' opposition, too. It was like, oh, we're going to go more than that. And it became this 
ever escalating thing, which led to Calhoun saying something that, you know, probably shouldn't say. He said Jackson was a Caesar who ought to have a Brutus, obviously, you know, referencing, you know, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or maybe just Julius Caesar in general, where, you know, Brutus is his closest friend who, you know, stabs him. And that might have riled up some people, including a fellow named Richard Lawrence. Ah, yes. Okay. So Richard Lawrence is one of those guys in the history books who is mainly known for one thing. You don't know a ton about his life except for his one thing. And we'll tell you what it is and why Calhoun's statement was so inflammatory. So Lawrence was born in England. We know that he moved to D.C. in 1812. And he was not, uh, he was not this big, high muckety-muck in either country. You know, he wasn't a, a representative or a senator in the U.S. He painted homes for a living. And it was a good living. It's a decent living. Uh, he was known to be amicable. Uh, he had a good work ethic. But over time, he started getting a little wonky in his ticker. And he started having these delusions. Uh, and he became more and more convinced that he was a long-lost heir to the British throne. And this continues. So 1812, this grows over a couple of decades. By 1835, when this speech takes place, Richard Lawrence is pretty certain, like 99% certain, that he's the rightful king of England and that the world will readily admit to this once they see his evidence, if only he can get Andrew Jackson, King Andrew, out of the way. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Right, there can't be two kings. You got to get the king who's, you know, hoarding your money out of the way. And I, Ben, I think it's important to take a little step back here 
and kind of just talk about Andrew Jackson's time because, you know, we have this painting. Jackson was very much about persona and we yeah. have kind of this image in our head of what Andrew Jackson. I mean, he was like like the hero general of the War of 1812. We think of it as this imposing, dominant figure, verbally strong. This man was not this at this point. He was 67 years old and we're talking 1835, 67. I mean, yeah, he had had a large number of just like maladies and mishaps and being Andrew Jackson, a lot of them were self-caused. Like he had been in like a dozen duels, including having a bullet lodged in his chest, like in his Mm -hmm. lungs for 30 years. Mm -hmm. There was a British uh, social theorist called Harriet Martineau who had like a little, like she was actually around for a lot of this. So you'll hear from her a couple times, but she says, general Jackson is extremely tall and thin with a slight stoop beckoning more weakness than naturally belongs to his ears. Yeah, so he's a tall guy, and uh, being being taller than average is actually really helpful when someone is running for the presidency. It has an unconscious effect on a lot of voters. But uh, because he was old and because he had such grievous wounds and, and several health problems, his height kind of worked against him, and he's getting more and more scrunched up. It's kind of like if you look at that iconic uh, painting of Andrew Jackson, which was actually in 1835, it was done by a guy named Ralph uh, Eliezer Whiteside Earl. Just Google Andrew Jackson painting. It's going to be one of the first ones that shows up. It, it reminds me of how you will see a celebrity's headshot and then you will see a candid photo of that that poor person just trying to get to McDonald's. You know, they're not trying mm-hmm. to be in the movie right now. And you see those photos side by side and go, wow, a lot of work went into one of these. That's mm-hmm. kind of what the comparison of Jackson would have been like at this time. And he had other names besides King Andrew. King Andrew is a uh, an insult used by his detractors. Also, jackass was common. They would call him jackass. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, That's how we got the donkey. That's how the Democratic <laughs> Party got the donkey. People called him jackass so much. They were like, he's like, I like that. I'm keeping that. <laughs> I'm going to own it. We're taking it back. Uh, his supporters would call him his supporters and admirers. There's a Venn diagram, but they're always the same thing. Uh, his supporters called him Old Hickory because of his performance in the War of 1812. And Here's where all we see all these details start to commingle. Let's get back to Lawrence. He knows, knows in his mind, like that he has some sort of incontrovertible proof that he is the true king. And that because Andrew Jackson, in a completely different country, is a president called King Andrew, that's somehow all that's stopping Lawrence's ascension. So Makes sense to me. I, I, I don't know why out. we're debating this. Yeah, checks okay, out completely, yeah. man. All right. Well, you're the expert here. so I am so, Max with the facts. <laughs> Who's that sneaking in the phone? It's Max! And he's full of knowledge just for you right now. Here he comes. It's Max with the facts! <sighs> yeah, did I just sound cue my own self? Yeah, I yes. did that. That's awesome. And shout out, of course, to our very dear friend, uh, Matt Frederick. Uh, Matt Frederick, yeah, will be coming, uh, will be coming along in a later episode, hopefully. Uh, it is birthday season, by the way, for, uh, for the stuff they don't want you to know crew. So Matt, Noel, and I all have birthdays coming up. If you guys are listening to the episode, happy new year, dudes. Uh, anyway, Lawrence. Lawrence, here's this line from Calhoun. Uh, and he he was probably part of the audience when Calhoun said this. And just a few days later, January 30th, Lawrence tries to take his destiny in his own hands. He decides that if fate will not intervene on his behalf, he'll get rid of this King Andrew himself. He picked a, a pretty good target. Uh, we have a description from a wonderful little time.com article by Jennifer Latson that describes Old Hickory's actual physical state around this time. And I love, I love a crazy laundry list. Max, can you hit us with this one and, and like lean into it? 
Old Hickory suffered from nearly every physical ailment imaginable. Smallpox, osteomyelitis, malaria, dysentery, rheumatism, dropsies, cholera morbius, a widespread intestinal inflammation, amyloidosis, a waxy degeneration of body tissues, and bronchitis, which is inflamed and dilated bronchial tubes. These ailments, in addition to lingering effects of injuries sustained in duels, one which left a bullet permanently lodged in his lungs, meant that Jackson began his presidential term racked with pain and fainting from weakness. So, uh, you know, any any mispronunciations of those specific medical conditions uh, fall fall on me uh, as well because we were we were looking some of these up. Uh, these are real conditions, and to have all of them at once is not a walk in the park. This means that the U.S. president could not pass that uh, presidential fitness test some of no. us had to take <laughs> in school. So Jackson is, you know, at this funeral. It's a very sad occasion. We have put aside rhetoric today. I'm going to behave myself. You're going to behave yourself too. Death is bigger than all of us. It's the end of the funeral. Jackson's leaving via the East Portico and Richard Lawrence comes up and starts, you know, hassling him. Security is different at this time too, obviously. And Lawrence pulls a pistol from his jacket. It's a Derringer. He aims at Jackson and he fires. And nothing happens. Well, something does happen. It fires, but no bullet comes out. Yeah. Jackson is just fine. I mean, well, saying he's fine is maybe not. Because remember, he might be 67. He might be old. He might be sickly. But he's still Andrew Jackson. So the, <laughs> so his response isn't like get behind people or get like, you know, his security to take care of it. He goes, oh, you serious? He charges at the guy with his old hickory cane and starts clubbing Lawrence. That is his instant response is I'm going to beat this guy up. And it gets worse because Lawrence, as it turns out, had another pistol. Yes. <laughs> so, so Jackson, Jackson is like, you insolent whippersnapper, or uh, whatever. And then he starts going to town on him with this cane. And then Lawrence is like fending it off and pulls out his second pistol, his second firearm, also loaded. He pulls the trigger again. That's right. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, Nothing. <laughs> not, not, I, I mean, maybe like a, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a derringer from the get go. So how loud do we expect this thing to be? It's like the smallest gun ever made. Not really, but it basically is. Yeah. It's, it's no howitzer. And by now, Jackson's crew, his entourage, are hip to the game. So they grab Lawrence and they physically pull him away and Jackson is unharmed. I mean, he's still racked with medical problems, but he's, he doesn't have a gunshot to add to those. And uh, he is livid. And he will be paranoid for the rest of his life. I would hate to be one of the members of his entourage and say, you know, hey, sorry, that guy slipped by you and tried to shoot you. And then did it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, security at this time was not great. I mean, and it should be pointed out, this is the first assassination attempt that we know of, at least, against the sitting president in history of this country. I mean, so maybe they just didn't think about it, but it is still pretty bad. But, I mean, we have to talk about the pistols. So it's just like, you got to think, like, were these things malfunctioning? Were they wrong? Like, how did this guy, because he was right next to Jackson by the point. It wasn't like he was like shooting from a long distance. How did Jackson not get shot? And we don't really know, do we, Ben? Yes. Yeah, we are not sure because <sighs> both of the pistols were working. Yeah. He, he had loaded them. He may have they been- They were beef. Yeah, they were beef. <laughs> they were beefed. Uh, Lawrence may not have been in the best mental state but he was about his business when it came to firearm maintenance and loading these. And they 
continue, like there was testing done on them later. And the testing found that this is per U.S. Senator Thomas Hart Benton. The testing found that every time they tried to fire either of these pistols afterwards, they fired per normal. And they could fire accurately at a distance of 30 feet or so. This is where we get to a weird lottery. This is, I think, the stuff you really can't explain. The calculated likelihood of both pistols misfiring on that day in 1835 is something like 125,000 to one. So Jackson won the lottery twice in a row. I mean, I feel like there has to have been something else that happened, but I mean, we don't know. And I mean, it sounds like they just both misfired from everything we've read. And I mean, which is like, wow, Jackson, I. Uh, Good, good on you, I guess. You won the lottery. But Ben, I want to backtrack to something Jackson actually said when yeah. he was clubbing Lawrence. It's kind of weird. It doesn't actually make a ton of sense, except if you think about it, because you mentioned the paranoia that he had Ooh. after this and probably the paranoia that he had plenty of beforehand. But so when he's like charging at Lawrence, he's clubbing him and he's screaming, let me alone, let me alone. I know where this came from which is a weird kind of line to be screaming. It's like, let me alone. I know where this came from. He's like, you're a wig operative or something. Exactly. He does seem, yeah, he does seem to, at least in his mind, have a, um, an understanding of a conspiracy behind this assassination attempt. I also want to point out that um, you'll find some historians arguing that the humidity of the day may have, may have contributed to the pistols misfiring, but that's that's still not proven. Also, just a side note, if we ever do this as a historical reenactment, other people watched Jackson beat the snot out of this guy <laughs> yes. until they thought Jackson might actually kill him. They were like, this old man is going to kill him. Davy Crockett is in the audience, Max. Davy Crockett's mm-hmm. one of the people who says, I don't know. Okay, okay. Now let's separate them. It's all been fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, big guy, you've had your fun. Let's let's chill out. Let's let's get you a nap, buddy. Let's get you a nap, and you can go yell at. I don't know. You can't yell at the TV. What would he yell at? I don't know. Probably yell at some bird or something outside. Yeah, a bear. You uh-huh. know. So we we also want to thank, by the way, Lorraine Bosigno, who wrote an excellent article in the Smithsonian about this attempted assassination. We're also pulling in some some other sources and uh, observations here, like the travelogue you mentioned, Max. So Jackson was convinced this attack was politically motivated. This was the first attempt to assassinate a sitting president, and the media and the public went nuts. Talk about the proliferation of speculation and conspiracy theories here. Jackson himself was certain, when he says, I know where this came from, he was certain that a rival politician named George Poindexter was uh, behind it. He thought Poindexter hired Lawrence to kill him. Problem was, Jackson's certitude didn't seem to be backed up by evidence. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I mean, I guess it would make sense considering all the vitriol of the time, but it also makes way more sense that this guy, as we later found, was just, you know, not all there, to say the least. But, I mean, this didn't stop Jackson from, you know, going out and pretty much declaring that this is fact and that all these wigs must pay. Martineau actually has an account of that night when everyone was, like, hanging out afterwards. Yeah, later, same day, later that night, she goes to a party. Mm-hmm. Ja- Jackson is at this party. Before we proceed with this, what is this party for? Is this party just a party they already had scheduled? Is it a party, like a wake party for the guy they just buried? Because remember, a, they're at a funeral. Mm-hmm. Or is it a party because Jackson survived someone trying to shoot him twice and then he beat the living shit out of him? Beat me, please, Max. <laughs> yeah, self-beep, I love it. You know, that is a good question. I... I'm tempted to think that it was already planned. I'm tempted to. I don't know. Somebody correct me on this. I'm tempted to think there was something already planned, but it became a celebration of a couple of different things. You know what I mean? 
like you, uh, you have a friend whose birthday is on July 5th and you were already having a July 4th party that weekend. So, you know, double up, bang for your buck. So it's like it's like somebody who's born on Christmas and has to celebrate they, their Christmas present and birthday present at the same time. Oh, and they really get skimped out that way. Yeah, I feel for you folks, you know, um, the moral fortitude that you have grown. That's the real present yes. is something that some other line your parents fed you. Anyway, here's what Martino says at this at this party right after someone tried to kill the president. Before two hours were over, the name of almost every eminent politician was mixed up with that of the poor maniac who caused the uproar. Jackson protested in the presence of many strangers that there was no insanity in the case. I was silent, of course. He protested that there was a plot, and that the man was a tool, and at length quoted the Attorney General as his authority. It was painful to hear a chief ruler publicly trying to persuade a foreigner that any of his constituents hated him to death, and I took the liberty of changing the subject as soon as I could. What do you change the subject to? Are you like, wow, yeah, huh? That's crazy. So is this the Washington eggnog recipe? Uh-huh. Um, so tell me the story of how you got that bullet in your lung. <laughs> right. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like you'd be a hard person to change the subject of. It's like you change the subject... And they would listen to you change the subject, then immediately go back to what they were talking about. Oh, yeah. They say he seems like that type of person. And I mean, what is interesting also about this is I mean, we've seen this unfortunately with a lot of conspiracy theories in the last couple of years. There, if you yell them loud enough, you don't actually have to put any truth behind it. And that we saw that in this case. So, like, despite no evidence of this conspiracy, I mean, there's absolutely no connection whatsoever to the Wakes hiring Lawrence to kill Jackson. Sensationalism took over the story. It was just everywhere. Absolutely. And I do want to say that some conspiracy theories, with the benefit of retrospect, do end up being true, just actual conspiracies. Uh, But this was definitely a blossoming of conspiracy theories uh, where evidence, if there was any evidence, took a far back seat. A paper in Boston was saying rumor is circulating a thousand stories. They were probably at a loss trying to figure out which to print. People were asking immediate questions, very valid questions. Was Richard Lawrence a hired assassin? And if so, logically, who hired him? These are the things that immediately went through Jackson's mind when he realized he wasn't going to die from that first gunshot, picked up the cane in his like weird Kill Bill moment. Uh, and he immediately, you know, he, I, I would not be surprised if in his mind at that point, he's physically beating Poindexter, you know, and that's what he's thinking of. Uh, but the two main suspects in Congress are his uh, Jackson's former VP, Calhoun, who has to go to the Senate and publicly declare his innocence And then the president, of course, says, it's that bastard Poindexter, the senator from Mississippi. Uh, He's involved in this. And it was never proven again, but it probably cost Poindexter his reelection because that's some bad PR. What did the Whigs do? The Whigs say the conspiracy goes even deeper. The Whigs name Andrew Jackson as the chief conspirator in his assassination attempt. They say, look, everybody knows you're a jerk and you're trying to make America forget that and like you because you survived this fake assassination attempt. Shades of Alex Jones here. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. But you teased it. You teased it really well, Max. Was there a conspiracy? No. Richard Lawrence was just... Not right. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So, obviously, this guy tries to kill a president. He's going to go to trial. He goes to trial, and, yeah, it becomes very, very evident. So, not only did the painter believe the president had killed his father, he believed that Andrew Jackson had killed Richard Lawrence's father, which, no. He was also convinced he was a 15th century king King Richard the Third, not not a descendant. He thought he was the Richard the Third. He was Richard Lawrence the Third. He thought that, and he was also. I mean, so a little context right here. This is when Jackson's trying to get rid of the Bank of the United States at this point in time. De- decentralize the bank. Blah blah blah. That's a big thing that's going on in history mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced that the bank is going to pay him his money and Jackson's doing that. So he will not get his money as we can see, not really all there. Yeah. Uh, but he's got, he's got a lot. <laughs> he's got a lot of confidence, which goes a long way in this country. He's Lots got some of confidence. Of Here's one of our, uh, cinematic moments. The famous attorney, Francis Scott key is the chief prosecutor The trial happens um, just a few months later in April of 1835. And during the trial, King Richard Lawrence III says to the jurors, it is for me, gentlemen, to pass upon you, not you, upon me. Yeah, yeah. He he, he was actually found not guilty because of of reasons of insanity. And he was confined to a hospital for the mentally ill until his death, until... 1861. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he he was never convicted of this crime, though. Think about that. Yeah. Also, we have to point out that uh, if we're being if we're being completely honest, this is a pretty harsh punishment because hospitals for the mentally ill, all all facilities for uh, people with mental issues, are terrible places. Uh, oh, well, yeah. not all. That's hyperbolic. But the majority of them are very, very bad places at this time in the U.S. and in Europe. If we're being, if we're being honest. So, so what does Jackson think? Uh, the guy who tried to kill him twice has been ruled insane. Congress has done some investigations. The court of public opinion has adjourned. They found no conspiracy. Is Jackson happy? Is old Hickory satisfied? Oh no, he's still absolutely not. No, he's uh he's still beefing it. He is he's uh, beefing it hard, man. So beefed right now. This guy, he uh, he thinks he says, "Look, there must have been some kind of cover up because I still think the Whigs were somehow involved, the Whig Party." Uh, and in 1837 the end of his presidency, someone asked him if he has any regrets. And that's a question that can be tricky for a lot of public figures to navigate. And they're very rarely honest about it. Uh, So he says, yes, I regret I was unable to shoot Henry Clay or to hang John C. Calhoun. 
the worst enemies start as friends, I guess. I guess so. I mean, I don't think... I mean, granted, Henry Clay had been an opponent of his for a long time. I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for Henry Clay, he would have been president in 1824. Not saying that's a good thing, but that's a thing. But, yeah, I'm assuming he went to his grave believing that Richard Lawrence was hired by those guys. Yeah, and, you know, maybe I'm... um mythologizing a bit to say that he and Calhoun were friends because of the way the appointment of the vice president worked back in that time. It's very different from the way a vice president works today, right? I feel like they had changed that law by that point because a little weird history thing. It was the runner up in elections became the VP. I think they changed that after Aaron Burr became the VP because everyone's like, Aaron Burr should not be the president. They were fine with Aaron Burr as the VP, but Aaron Burr nearly became president in 1800. And if you've seen Hamilton, you know Aaron Burr's not the, a good guy in history. That's right. That's right. It's the um, 12th Amendment. It was 18, oh, uh, yeah, to be used in the 1804 election. Okay, yeah, so, so they probably did appear to get along at some point, but they became bitter enemies is the takeaway. and. Now, we're, we've got to talk about a couple of other failed assassination attempts just to bring some attention to these. Because if you're a kid in the U.S., you know all the stories about the successful assassination attempts. And odds are you're very aware of two, and you may not know too much about uh, the other ones. You're aware of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln at the Ford Theater, and you're aware of the assassination of John Kennedy at that motorcade in Dallas. But you might not be aware of all the other attempts to assassinate U.S. presidents. Again, it's a very dangerous job. Sorry, Ice Road Truckers. Uh, you, you are statistically, I think, probably safer than a president. I mean, th that is so true. But to put in summary, eight of the 46 presidents in our, in our country's history have died in office. I mean, four of them have been natural causes. Natural causes. I'm putting quotations on that one because <laughs> we're not we sure about two of them. Yeah. And, but there's four that have been assassinated. Obviously, you said JFK. You, you said Abraham Lincoln. Those are the two very famous ones. But then also we have William McKinley. Yep. Was assassinated. And then we have Garfield who was assassinated too. And they're not as famous. Oddly enough, McKinley is the one that surprised me because it was actually his, his VP became very famous, which is Theodore Roosevelt. Right. But what gets even more mind-blowing is when you see how many assassination attempts there have been. And there's a lot more in history now because, you know, Secret Service have gotten more sophisticated, declassifying of documents. That mm -hmm. we know about attempts against, like, you know, recent presidents such as, you know, Bush, Obama, such as those, because we just have more sophisticated technology and then planning online. But there were some assassination attempts that were pretty, pretty scary. So, Ben, I suggest we each do one. We each pick our favorite one and we do one. Ooh, okay. I'll play your reindeer games. Uh, I'm going to go with, you know, what? I'm going to go with someone that we, we should probably talk about more often on the show. I'm going to go with William Howard Taft. That's a good one right there. What about you, man? Um, I will go with FDR. It's not, no, actually, scratch that. I'm going with Theodore Roosevelt. He wasn't technically a president at this point, but I'm going to go with it. Perfect. All right, here we go. So William Howard Taft is probably most commonly known for two things. One, uh, being president uh, and then, uh, you know, all his public service. He was a Supreme Court justice as well and a senator. This guy went through the ranks. Um, he's also known for uh, being stuck in a bathtub, which is a true story. <laughs> Those happen. are just like two big things. So uh, the, it, it, uh, it's a it's a one and a two B. There's no one A, there's no two. It's a one and a two B. Let's be honest about Taft. The one is he got stuck in the bathtub. The two B is oh, everything no. else. <laughs> so okay, so it's 1909, and Taft is supposed to meet with the president of Mexico at the time, a guy named Porfirio Diaz. This is going to be the first ever meeting of this sort between Mexico and the U.S. And additionally, it's going to be the first time a U.S. president has entered the, has crossed the U.S.-Mexican border as it stands at that time. 
And in the, in this article we found by Audrey W., uh, Five Infamous Presidential Assassinations and Attempts, the news of the meeting led to a bunch of assassination threats against both the Mexican and the U.S. president, such that multiple armed force groups, uh, multiple intelligence groups on both sides of the border were all enlisted to try to provide security. October 16th, 1909. Day of the summit, there's a Texas Ranger walking around. He gets word that there's somebody out there with a pistol. Is it the Walker? Guys, <laughs> he's, well, he was walking for sure, so maybe they're related. And uh, he was grandfather or something, great grandfather. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, we gotta we gotta bring that one back later in a later episode. Uh, so okay, he's gonna beef it, man. <laughs> he just kind of. <laughs> All right. This guy, Texas Ranger, walking, not Walker, uh, is looking around because he hears that there is an individual in the crowd at the El Paso Chamber of Commerce standing armed along the route that the U.S. and Mexican presidents are going to take. Just as Taft and Diaz are passing, the Ranger finds the man, disarms him, and restrains him. So this doesn't feel as climactic, maybe, as the Lawrence Jackson assassination attempt, because the firearm never, like, it never got to the point necessarily of even those presidents being aware that their lives were at risk. And you have to ask yourself, um, I ask myself this all the time, how would history have changed if one or both of those men were assassinated? It's an impossible question to answer, but it is a fascinating one because if Taft died that day, then all of the other influence he had on U.S. government would have never come to pass. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 as I said, it's an impossible question to answer completely. So I'm not going to really try to answer it, but it, it people don't think of Taft as influential as he really was. I mean, he was known like because, you know. Teddy Roosevelt was known for breaking up the trust, but in four years, Taft broke up more trust than him. And as you said, he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court for nine years. This guy is very influential and very important. We would probably know more about him if he had a second term. And that's where we get back to Teddy Roosevelt and his assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for for those who don't know this, Teddy Roosevelt was president. Teddy Roosevelt decided he wanted to go hunt lions in Africa. I'm pretty sure that's actually what he told people he was going to go do. And so then he was like, you guys should vote for Taft. Taft was pretty good. But then Teddy Roosevelt came back and said, I want to be president again. And they were like, we like Taft. So Teddy Roosevelt was like, well, they obviously like me better. So he made his own party called the Bull Moose Party. Hmm. And he ran against Taft in 1912. Oddly enough, this is how we got Woodrow Wilson, who was not a favorite. He was not considered really in competition, but because they split the vote, he got the Mm -hmm. election. Mm -hmm. But let's go to a date. October 14th, 1912. Teddy Roosevelt's getting up on a stage to give a speech. He's got this big 50-page manuscript. He was known for, like Jackson, talking a lot and being very loud and maybe not as angry and racist as Jackson, but... He was known for being a very passionate speaker. Yeah. But there was a gentleman in the crowd by the name of John Schrank. Mm-hmm. I said that one right? Yeah. Shrank. Nice. Shrank. It's like a dollar store Shrek. Yeah, let's go with it. So Johnny, Johnny S, we'll call him. I'm going to call him that. <laughs> nice. He has come under the impression that I guess his favorite president, William McKinley, was secretly murdered remember we mentioned he was one of four presidents assassinated by mm-hmm. no other than teddy roosevelt so teddy roosevelt could ascend to the role of presidency remember this was in 1901 so 11 years passed by this point but johnny s is just waiting in there in the crowd roosevelt gives up there to give a speech and he pulls out a colt revolver a big gun and shoots it and hits teddy roosevelt right in the chest and then Teddy Roosevelt turns his head and looks at Johnny S and says, don't hurt him to the crowd. What'd you do that for? Remember, this guy who just got shot is there. And he's like, what'd you do that for? And Johnny S is just stunned. He's like, huh? What? And then you just he says nothing. <laughs> he gets apprehended the dragon away. 
And then Roosevelt, being the absolute badass that he is, turns his head and says, friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. And he unbuttons his shirt and shows all the blood. So it turns out that he has manuscript, his glasses, he had all this stuff in his breast pocket. And that's where the bullet had hit. So he still got hurt. The bullet still went through, but it wasn't as, you know, deadly as you would think. So, you know, people like his aides and stuff like, okay, Mr. President, we got to take you to the hospital. You got to go. He's like, uh, no, I'm I'm here to give a speech. I'm giving my speech. Like, oh, come on, come on. He's like, I'll give you a short one. How about that, guys? I'll give you a short one. And they're like, okay. He goes on for 90 minutes because he's Teddy Roosevelt. And then he eventually leaves, goes to the doctor. And what's funny enough is they're like, well, let's just leave the bullet in there. So similar to Jackson, he just lived the rest of his life with a bullet in his chest. Did not win re-election, by the way. No, and Shrank ended up being found guilty of the attempt, but uh, like Lawrence before him, he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in an asylum. In his case, it was in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Yeah, and it's strange. Teddy Roosevelt goes on to live until 1919, right? Uh, But I I think we we could put both of those stories in our official list of underrated assassination attempts. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there were real attempts. That was both of them got very. I mean, Teddy literally got shot. And I mean, I guess we don't really know from the story who the assassin at the uh, Taft assassination was going for. Was he going for Taft or the Mexican president? Right, right. Or was he going for both? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these stories, there are multiple people wounded and killed. So. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know, but it's like these were both very, very close to really changing the whole thing of history. Mm-hmm. And Ben, I'm going to set you up for one more. I don't know if it's, I would really call it an assassination attempt, but it was an assault on a uh, sitting president. And I know talking to you off, off mic, offline, uh, this is a personal favorite of yours. So I'm just going to let you take this one away. Oh man. Yeah. Let's double drag in this one. First, uh, Max, can we, can we play the clip? We'll play this for you, ridiculous historian. See if you can guess what this is about. All right. Well, ding, ding, ding. Uh, prize to everybody who heard that and just recalled one of the. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say hilarious, but a fascinating. It was uh, pretty hilarious, dude. I okay. still watch this video on the reg. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's kind of gone viral. Uh, so it's December fourteenth, two thousand eight. For six years, the U.S. has been searching for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and they're just not finding any. Then President George W. Bush visits the country before he plans to leave office. And he is there with the prime minister of Iraq at the time, Nouri al-Maliki, and they're going to have a news conference in Baghdad. And uh, Bush says, Bush is trying to tell this crowd of people, hey, this conflict went on longer than people wanted. You know, nobody loves a war, but this has been necessary for, quote, world peace. And that's where we meet uh, our hero of the pranks today. Yes, that hero is Muntadar al-Zaidi. Apologies once again for my pronunciations there. Uh, So he is a 28-year-old journalist working for the Egyptian-based television service called al-Baghdadi. And he stood up and he had something he wanted to say to uh, Mr. Bush. But it wasn't just with his words. It was with his, I don't know, would you call them his actions? Yes. Yes. So he takes off a shoe and he starts to scream, this is a gift from the Iraqis. This is a farewell kiss, you dog. Shouts it in Arabic, and he flings his shoe at the president. Who Matrix dodges it. Matrix dodges it. I, I'll say it. W had some moves, man. I he was impressed. Docked. Like, he, very he, quickly. This one's going straight for his head. Uh, not the same could be said for the second shoe. So... Alzadi reaches for his other shoe because, you know, we wear two shoes and he throws it while screaming. This is for the widows, the orphans and those who were killed in Iraq. Yeah. And uh, these are serious things. And uh, this journalist who is 
overcome with the with the horrors of war uh, has chosen not to use a firearm. I would say this means that it counts much less as an attack and much more as a protest, right? It is a protest. Uh, you also have to know that there's a reason he's throwing shoes and not tomatoes or something. Shoes in, in this part of the world uh, can be used as great instruments of insult because the implication is that you are lower than dirt. You are beneath my feet. You are beneath the feet of this country. You monster is basically what this journalist is saying. But if you look at the video that we just played a clip from, you'll see that the former U.S. president is kind of smirking after he does that first uh, first dodge, which is objectively is a good dodge. And then he kind of tells secure, secret security to stand down. Uh, weird story, in case anybody's wondering, what happened to the shoe? Well, the shoes were, you would naturally expect them to be uh, booby-trapped somehow, but they were not packed with explosives, nothing like that. They were regular shoes. They were this guy's shoes. He took off his shoes and threw them, uh, threw them as a protest. The shoes, I heard, Max, that the shoes themselves, after they were revealed to be just regular, regular shoes, uh, they were actually destroyed with prejudice, like exploded. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, if you send the president anything that, he doesn't want or they think might be dangerous. I feel like they just blow it up. Do you agree with that like assessment there, Ben? I feel like it's within your uh, abilities and privileges as commander in chief. Executive privilege there? Yeah, you could, <laughs> you could just say, I don't like it. Blow this up. Like, uh, but sir, it's a, it's a watercolor. Macaroni card from your child. Right. Yeah, right. It's a watercolor painting from the son of the ambassador. It's like, okay, well, I get a picture of me holding it and then blow it up. And then blow it up. It's hideous. <laughs> it's going to cause me nightmares. Get this out of my office. Well, it's just going to be in the background of all these photos. And it's just going to, it's really, that's all anyone's going to talk about. It clashes. So you know, I don't right. want to be the watercolor president. Uh, <laughs> like, LOL, OMG, totally. <laughs> we don't know if that actually happened, but we hope you enjoyed this look at failed assassination attempts. And we hope it prompts all of us to think about how history could have played out differently if any of these attempts had been successful. Uh, I want to begin the ending of our show by thanking, of course, one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Let's also thank our special guest, Max Williams. <laughs> Soak it up, man. <laughs> I'm soaking up. But let's not forget to uh, thank the researcher of this article, Mr. Max Williams. Yes, yes. Also, our research associate. Uh, and now we're done. But uh, also special thanks to our amazing, great research associates, Jeff Bartlett and Zach Williams. They are amazing. They're the true MVPs of the show. Yep. Uh, Gabe Luzier also now hosting this day in history class. I uh, want to thank, of course, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, Chris Rossiotis, Eves Jeffcoat. Uh, one thank Anna, who came on recently as well. I also want to say, I know I already said it, but Max, this is a lot of fun, man. And you know that Noel and I always love it uh, when when you are able to come on air with us even just a little bit. Uh, so I hope that uh, all of our fellow ridiculous historians out there, I hope you enjoyed Max on air as much as I did. Everybody tune in. We've got some more uh, special guests on the way. We're going to explore some strange stories about marathons, fast food, no spoilers other than that. Meantime, the last and most important thanks that I want to give at least, Max, is to uh, our good friend, ride or die, uh, Mr. Noel Brown. Noel, hope we did you proud. Uh, so I'm going to end the episode the way that you always do. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. 
You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.